podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the first West Ham breakdown of the 2023-24 season. The first of many breakdowns we expect we might be having over the course of the season following West Ham, as is often the case. I am Jack Elderton and I'm joined as usual, as always, by Callum Goodall. How's it going, mate? Yep, all good, all good. Glad that the season's back underway. Um, in in typical Premier League fashion, we've had a weekend of chaos. Um, for once, our game was probably one of the less chaotic ones, but that refereeing decision last night, starting as we mean to go on, eh? <laughs> it's going to be a long season, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, for once, it's maybe quite nice to be last on match of the day, but possibly not when you're launching your your tactics and data breakdown <laughs> podcasts about West Ham for the first time free on, on Spotify. First of all, before we do anything, big thank you to everyone who subscribed to Analytics United over the course of the last season. Anyone who tuned into the podcast last season, we've been doing this for it for well, a little while now because we started with the KUMB podcast and we did the, the AU podcast on, on the site and, and now we're doing the West Ham breakdown um, on, on Spotify. So thanks to everyone who's who's followed along throughout that. And it's been a very exciting few weeks for us because we're really proud to be able to say we're working in collaboration with West Ham this season. You can catch us in the official match program which is very exciting <laughs> and on the site and on social media and all of that stuff we've been talking a little bit about Edson Alvarez and, and James Ward-Prowse over the last couple of weeks if you want to find those bits you can find them on the site and um, yeah by the time this podcast is out uh, we'll be coming pretty close to the Chelsea game where you should be able to find a little bit from me in, in, in the program looking at the tactics ahead of that game and of course if you want to support the show getting access to the video we need to access to be able to do this and the data we need to access to be able to do this cost me quite literally an arm and a leg. It's getting <laughs> ridiculous these days to be able to access all of this stuff. Um, so if you want to support the show and for it to continue to exist, uh, certainly beyond this season, then please do head over to analyticsunited.co.uk and help support the show. We operate on a pay-what-you-want basis now, so whatever you can contribute um, would be much appreciated. That also be sort of I think more in depth than we're able to go into on on the podcast some tactical breakdowns on there I'm sure that you'll be writing a few bits about players that you like over the course of the season players that you hope that West Ham might take a look at so the standard Jack and Cal stuff that hopefully <laughs> you have either already come to get used to um, or, or will do over the course of, of this season um, as we cover West Ham first game of the season West Ham Bournemouth uh, away from home against a new look team managed by Andoni Raiola. Um, lots of things to be excited about. Maybe more so on the Bournemouth end from a tactical perspective than the West Ham end. Um, but the game was not hugely satisfying when it came to really analysing the tactics at play. I think fitness affected that for both teams and just a general kind of getting back into the swing of things, Bournemouth getting used to how they want to play under Iraola and some changes that we might be making that we'll go into over the course of this podcast. Um, but I suppose the first way, the first place to start talking about the match is um, I know that we both felt a little bit concerned heading into the season. After a one-all draw, do you feel more positive or more negative now? Probably more positive than I did feel, I think. I, that's not to say that I came away from the game feeling entirely positive, but I've, I think I've seen enough to to think we'll 
be fine. I know it's stupid to say that after one game, but I think fitness was obviously a concern. Um, it's always going to be at the start of the season. I think it usually takes between five to seven games to, for a team to really be up to full speed, even maybe more so when you're a team like West Ham who historically tends to do their business late in the window. So you have that issue of the squad trying to gel whilst also building their fitness up and potentially signing players who haven't trained or been partic- very involved in the in the preseason with their previous club because they knew that they were going to depart, um, which if we if we believe what we've read, then that's potentially the case with Edson Alvarez. Um, and I think, yeah, like there was definitely some things to take away that I felt positive about, uh, other things that I felt negative about. But I think when you consider that this is the weakest the squad will be all season because we haven't integrated any of our new additions, we've we're, we're learning to live without Declan Rice and a few other key departees. Um, Cresswell obviously not left yet, but. I imagine that he will, and he's been integral to the way that West Ham play for for years now. But especially under Moyes, he's been sort of a key point at the back there, and, and how we build up. So we're sort of learning on the job a bit. It feels like, but there were definitely positives to take away. Um, and I think once everyone's up to full speed, and we've worked out where the new players fit in, and they've learned how to play under Moyes, um, I think we'll probably be okay. I think we looked good at the things that we were good at. We looked dangerous from set pieces and. Um, I thought the block, at least in the first half, was pretty solid. So, Yeah, I think for, for me, I was quite nervous going into the game, especially with the way that the midfield looked and came out feeling uh, maybe slight, slightly refreshed at the fact that we seemed to, to cope quite well in there. Um, definitely pleased about the fact that we used four four two mostly defensively rather than the system that we saw quite a lot last season, not loads, but definitely sort of second half of the season, maybe the second third of the season. It uh, felt like we saw four one four one kind of appear quite a lot. And, um, you know, I think we both, well, I certainly associate that with, with games like the Newcastle game last season, where we really struggled to get close to our opponents, sort of had the midfield quite high, wanted to try and press, that left the wingers quite narrow alongside Rice. It was a little bit too much for, for everyone to cope with, really. Profiles not really being perfect for a lot of the roles that people ended up fulfilling. Not engaging intensely enough with that system to be able to support the kind of actual lack of um, coverage in midfield if the ball was able to be played through the first line of pressure. Um, And so there were a lot of things wrong with that system last season and the way that we probably tried to progress the way that we played a little bit from previous seasons. And then we were both pretty pleased towards the end of last season, for example, with games like the Fulham match when that finally came around as dull and as unexciting as it might have been to watch as a fan tactically going back to a very clear 4-4-2 in that match although we were forced deep for long periods felt like we were doing something that we were much better as 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 a squad and possibly as a manager as well in terms of the coaching much clearer for everyone on the pitch and uh, much more confidence in terms of how people carried out their roles and I suppose the Bournemouth game was kind of similar in that it wasn't particularly exciting. We did find ourselves forced back for, for quite long periods. We were playing that 4-4-2, but it did feel like the players had a little bit more confidence about what they were doing on the pitch. And there were some refreshing individual performances within that. And I think maybe a good place to start in terms of developing newer confidence and improving on what we saw last season is playing in that 4-4-2 block defensively. Your front two is an super important part of how how you engage when you engage uh, when you drop off and and how you sort of cover 
the center in order to protect your two central midfielders. And I must say, from my perspective, Fornells and Antonio is the best duo we've got at the football club for fulfilling those two positions. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think Antonio has, again, in sort of in that same category as, as Cresswell in terms of his importance under Moyes since, since Moyes has been here. Um, and I think for all the sort of criticisms that I would have of, of Antonio and and uh, I, uh, I would probably have liked to have moved on from him by now but obviously we just don't have the personnel to carry out the role that he does both in possession and out of it I think he um, for all of his faults he understands this system very well he executes the plans that Moyes puts in place he knows albeit sometimes maybe it doesn't look like he's doing it as fast as we might like or as aggressively as we might like he does know when and where to close to press and and to how to close pressing angles in collaboration with his partner as well. I think at times he looked a bit lost last season and came into a lot of criticism when we were playing in those 4-1 shapes because he was often just charging around on his own and that was pretty ineffective and it, and it made it very easy for us to play through because he didn't have someone to sort of close the extra passing lane down that had opened up by him closing down one. So now with a partner in four nows, I think you can sort of see it becoming a lot more effective. Um, and sort of if that partnership continues to blossom and develop, then it will obviously become more effective. Like I say, hopefully we won't have to be as dependent as we have been on Antonio this season, because hopefully someone else will come into the club who can follow out those instructions to a similar level. Um, but yeah, I thought it worked effectively. And then the flip side is I think we've always known about Fournau's tenacity off the ball and sort of that is um, maybe not the most technical thing or most intelligent thing, just having that energy. But it's also really important if you're going to try and press throughout long swathes of the game and that tenacity combined with his general fitness and, and effort, quite frankly, like he always gives 100% at West Ham and clearly loves the club. And when he gets those chances to play, which have been few and far between at least in the last calendar year I guess last season he didn't feature anywhere near as much as we would have liked but it's nice to see that when he does get given that chance he doesn't shrop or moan he comes straight back in and 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 does the job that's needed of him and I think albeit not it wasn't really as a result of the 4-4-2 shape specifically but I think we see a good example of this and his sort of defensive awareness uh, for the goal when he sort of snaps onto the the uh, ball when Bournemouth have just regained possession, wins it back. Suchek then gets the ball and rolls it onto Bowen. And I mean, what can we say about the finish? Bowen's goal was quite frankly amazing. Um, but I think that's it. It's that sort of commitment straight away. As soon as he's lost the ball, he wants to win it back for now, whether it's a teammate that's lost it or him. And I think that is going to be crucial this season, should he stick around, which I pray that he does. Not only because I think he's a useful squad player, but also I just love him. <laughs> I think all of those positive attributes that he has can be very useful to us in the centre of the pitch. And um, I also think, you know, on top of everything that you mentioned, his discipline when he's playing that role as part of the front two defensively is a real strong point and has come on a long way since he first started playing that role under, under Moyes. Uh, even just at times being able to drop off the front line and plug holes in, in midfield if Packard has been pulled out in this game, Packard and Suchek forming the double pivot. Um, if one of those players has been pulled out, Fornals is quite happy to drop in or is aware of that drop in and um, is good enough in, in those situations to be able to snap into a tackle, win it back. And then, as we know, with Fornals, quite good at playing forward quickly and getting us moving on on the on the counter attack so really nice player to to have in that role um one of the other things that was lovely to see 
is the much maligned Thomas Suchek having a really good performance in the middle of the park. Uh, return to box crashing. Uh, there's been a lot of questions flying about. Did Declan Rice actually shackle Thomas Suchek and turn him <laughs> into a worse football player? Uh, what's your take on that, Carl? Uh, I think there's probably an element of truth to it. I think because of Rice being the most important player at the club and sort of him understandably, completely fairly wanting to develop as a midfielder and sort of become that sort of all-round box-to-box presence, it necessitated Suchek to sit back a bit and and unfortunately that was the product of that and I'm, I don't begrudge Rice it and I think obviously we saw the strengths of him charging up the pitch on numerous occasions and obviously that goal where he carried it the full length and slotted it into the corner, that's what you get. But as a result... Here come the hammers. On, yeah. <laughs> as a result, you do miss out on, on Suchek's box presence and I think we saw it in great effect at Bournemouth. I think he was unfortunate not to score twice, actually. He, he hit the post, obviously, and then Antonio was unfortunate for the rebound not to just fall straight to him and luckily for Neto went straight into his arms and then secondly another thing we've known Suchek to be great at is the set pieces um, and he was unfortunate not to score a header um, from a corner as well I think it was actually our highest XG chance throughout the game Um, and I think what is really exciting in both of those respects actually is that assuming we are able to successfully integrate both Ward-Prowse and Alvarez then Alvarez playing as a screening six in theory will give Suchek more license to bomb forward because he has much more defensive cover behind him. Whereas against Bournemouth, he was, even though he was box crashing, probably, well, definitely the most defensive of the three midfielders that was fielded and therefore the responsibility lied on his shoulders primarily. Um, So with that defensive security, hopefully we'll see him get into the box even more. Um, And then you factor in Ward-Prowse's delivery and the prospect of either open play crosses onto a box crash in Suchek's head or a Ward-Prowse free kick or corner onto a Suchek head. And it makes him an even more dangerous weapon to have in in your team. And um, I think fans have been very quick to write off Suchek over the past few years. Um, Understandably, at times he's been a real hindrance. I think his, his ability on the ball is limited in terms of his security and possession and his playmaking abilities. And when we've struggled in possession, it's often him that's carried the blame which is fair, um, but I think it's also unfair to expect him to be able to do that because that's never been his skill set. If you have the ability to think far enough back to that first season, then we know what a player he is when he's utilised in the correct way. And hopefully the makeup of the squad now in the way that the midfield's shaping up, where we don't have to accommodate Rice and all of his desire to bomb forward, it can then bring Suchek back into the fold and, and really allow him to play to his strengths. And if that is the case, then we have a really, really important midfielder on our hands, frankly. Yeah, as with many of these things, there is a kernel of truth inside a very exaggerated package. (laughs) Uh, You know, obviously Rice being a fantastic football player and offering a hell of a lot of upside to us. But one of the limitations I think we had with that kind of oscillating midfield two when one would bomb and one would sit and Rice increasingly became more active as someone who was getting forward is that he didn't necessarily have the creativity in the final third to to unlock a defence or play a final pass and he probably didn't have the same ability to make late runs as Suchek did to arrive in the box on the end of of bits and pieces um and actually, I think it's worth saying, you know, we talk a lot about Suchek's headers and stuff. He's scored a lot of goals from really clever runs into the box. And and, and, yep. the, and the run that he makes when he hits the post is a perfect example of that. He's not mm-hmm. just someone that's a threat from from crosses. He's actually 
got a really good eye for the right time to to bomb into the box and make up that extra man who's going to be untracked. And as long as you've got players around him, like Lucas Paqueta, Pablo Fornals, to some extent, side Ben Rama, who are able to pick out those those really um, incisive passes through a back line. I think on this occasion it was Ben Rama. Um, then there's a chance that he's able to get on the end of those and, and, and be a serious goal threat. Interestingly, in this game, I'd say that his partner benefited him massively in possession because any duo that involves Thomas Suchek box crashing is going to need someone who's going to take a hell of a lot of responsibility in possession. And that is Lucas Paqueta. Weirdly, I wouldn't have expected it to work massively well defensively because when Suchek box crashes, that is going to mean that Lucas Paqueta is kind of holding the fort together as a defensive midfielder. But he made eight tackles in the game and he, he kind of looked okay in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was good. He was he was reliable, and I think I had the same impression as you. I think uh, for a long time people had been screaming out for a Rice for Nows Packeter midfield three um, because of the issues in progression and and um, Suchek's role in that. I think I don't think many people called for a Suchek for Nows Packeter uh, midfield three, um, particularly one where Suchek wasn't really this lone six. Uh, he was still very involved in the final third. You would assume in that squad makeup, in that midfield makeup rather, that he would have to be sitting because of the <laughs> offensive nature of the other two midfielders. But yeah, the balance worked. And I think, again, it comes back to that sort of tenacity and improved positional discipline of both Pakita and Fornals in terms of what they can offer in transition defence and sort of knowing when to, if Suchek's forward, then I just have to respect that and just chill here for a bit. And even if I'm just a body in the way, or even if I just go and get near one player, that means they can't receive the pass. It limits the options in transition, slows it down a bit and gives everyone time to get back. That is crucial. And yeah, like you say, he won eight tackles and I think he was as important in, in, the respect that I just mentioned as well in terms of just sort of stifling, even if he brought us back a second because he made Joe Rothwell, who this isn't a Bournemouth podcast, but I've got to give him some credit because that guy <laughs> ran the midfield. I'm not going to lie. I was it's not familiar. Yeah, he was yeah. brilliant. Great moustache as well, um, which I thought was <laughs> good vibes. Uh, and he was unfortunate, to be fair, to not score a Bowen-esque goal at the other end when he hit the bar. Um so yeah, props to him. But I think yeah, I think the the makeup of the midfield, as obscure and unorthodox as it might have been, it, it somehow worked. This does not mean to say that I want it to be our starting midfield going forward for the season because I don't know how sustainable it is. Um, but yeah, I think it kind of all just came together. And before we move on, I think as well, just back on Suchek quickly. I think what he offers in out of possession is just incredible as well, and we saw that against Bournemouth. I think he aerially won 71% of his duels which if you're going to play in a low block and defend the box you're going to need to do that and then he won 11 of 12 defensive duels as well which is 92% defensive duel success which is just freaky uh, so yeah fair play to Suchek and, and long may it continue because I would love nothing more than for him to sort of get the fans back on side and become the Thomas Suchek of that first season where we all absolutely loved him and, and mature in his name and of course he's just signed a new contract as well so clearly he's in Moyes' plans moving forward yeah, and I think if that's to happen, I think one of the key things that does need to happen within this fan base is an acceptance that Thomas Ujic is not going to record high numbers of passes every game. This is something mm-hmm. that gets banded around a lot on on Twitter and other social media platforms. And in the stands that you hear it a lot, you know, Thomas Ujic not passing the ball well enough. You know, the, the remit of a manager is to make sure that every player is correctly profiled and you're getting the best out of them by maximising 
their strengths and, and minimizing the, the appearance of their weaknesses. And, you know, for all of Thomas Suchek's strengths, his clear and obvious weakness that everyone is aware of is that he's not brilliant on, on the ball, certainly not with his back to goal. You know, receiving first off the defense is not a strength in his game at all, as we saw last season in the game against Crystal Palace. And although I would say it was a pretty bad pass to him on that occasion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, the system is functioning correctly if Thomas Sujek is recording less passes. If yep. his midfield partner is taking the responsibility in possession, you're allowing Sujek to be, great description I heard the other day repeated by, by Charlie Walsh, who's often been on this podcast, a box and box midfielder rather than a box to box midfielder. Nice. And that's what you're, you know, that's, you're probably getting the best out of him at that point. I also think if we're going to talk a little bit more about Lucas Pacatur's performance, um, and we'll have to speak about this bid that keeps being rumoured and mm-hmm. spoken about, but it's never coming um, from Manchester City. We also should probably talk about, and the way I can probably bring this up is by referencing um, a Musa Akwanga quote about Bruno Fernandes that I heard repeated by Carl Anker, um, which is that when Bruno Fernandes first arrived at um, Manchester United, he often played like he was running downhill. And Lucas Paqueta, as much as he had a very strong performance in this game, very good defensively, much better than I think anyone could have anticipated, and offered a lot in terms of receiving off the defence and helping us progress the ball forward, he does at times look to progress at any cost. Mm. Um, and, you know, the next thing that we're going to talk about here is is game management and how to deal with being in the lead. Obviously, you want to go and chase that second goal. You want to be successful and effective on the counter and, and be a threat when you're sitting deep. But if your receive first midfielder is turning and launching it, in behind repeatedly at the cost of possession, it is a slight concern. Yeah, a hundred percent. It it was incredibly frustrating. And uh, I almost feel not hypocritical because there's so many times last season where I complained about the fact that we couldn't get the ball forward fast enough because we didn't have those players. And then Pakatar comes in and now I'm saying, oh, he's going too fast. But it does come down to game management. The reason I was frustrated that we weren't getting it forward fast enough is because nine times out of ten we were probably losing and we were trying to score but you need that sort of tactical nous when you're in those positions to just know because like we saw he was seeding possession so regularly I think he attempted five long balls only one of them came off 20% accuracy and a lot of those times it wasn't the pass itself that was necessarily wrong. It was just that he could have taken another second or two to just wait to see if the run's going to be made or or wait to see if the defender's tracking. And then you go, okay, well, if the defender's tracking, then I'll probably just pass it back a little bit and wait until the run's a bit more of a um, dangerous one or the, the likelihood of success is higher because they're going to receive in more space with more freedom. Um, and if you're going to keep up giving possession, you're going to invite pressure. And then that's obviously how we ended up conceding. We get forced back and back and back, which against the Niraiola side, you, you know you're going to get pressed to hell. Like I think they have recorded a PPDA of four uh, across the for, throughout the match, which is just an insane level of pressing. But that's it comes with the territory with him. So I kind of expected us to get pressed like that. But what you need is that composure and that calmness when you do have the possession so that you're not just inviting wave after wave. And as you get pinned back, you have more players behind the ball. And then the likelihood, the amount of opportunity there is for a deflection, like we saw off the heel of Thomas Suchek, is far higher because so many people are in the way of the ball and the goal. And 
it's one of those sort of pop shots that because you're so under the cosh, the luck just falls against you and it lands at Solanke's feet and then you're back to 1-1 and all of a sudden it's like, damn, we maybe should have been a little bit more calm um, rather than scared, which I think is not unfair to say we looked at times, I think. I think also, you know, as well as sometimes just waiting a second, seeing seeing what happens ahead of you, who makes runs and, and whether the, you know, the chance to pop the ball over the top is actually on. Partly it's about varying your play and, and, and just having that that intelligence in these situations to know that, yeah, okay, we could go directly in behind in this situation. And also it's not necessarily the wrong thing to do, but there's no one around me. You know, I've got mm-hmm. 10 yards of space to run into. And I could carry the ball forward. We could play two passes and we might win a throw or a free kick. And that is going to give us a chance to reset. It's going to give the ch- uh, the defence a chance to step up the pitch. Because if I do play this long pass, which might come off for us, and their centre-back heads it back the other way, well, yeah, there's no one around me, but I'm alone in midfield with a bunch of Bournemouth players recovering now to try and win that back. And my defensive line hasn't had much chance to actually get up the pitch from where they were previously. So Bournemouth are going to be very easily able to reset high up the pitch and I suppose that brings us on naturally to the next you know topic of discussion which I think is probably one of the biggest things we should talk about because it's been the biggest talking point in in the fan base after this game which is that the key question for me is does David Moyes when West Ham go one nil up in football matches shout from the sideline everyone get back pack the box we're not attacking anymore or does the general flow of a football match change as you get closer to the end of a match with a one-goal lead when another team is desperately trying to push for a winner? And how you know, much of each of those things is it, or is it more so one than the other? I know how I feel about this, you know, and I suppose I can begin talking about that with the fact that Bournemouth finished the game with Dominic Solanke, Kiefer Moore, Anthony Semenyo, uh, Justin Cliver and Philip Billing, who was at that point not really a central midfielder any longer, <laughs> yeah. all on the pitch at the same time, pushing against our last line. And as much as I think it would be, you know, lovely if you could play in a contextless world and keep your back four there and ignore the fact that they're committing a hell of a lot of big lads onto the last line and launching the ball into the box, realistically putting Thomas Suchek in with those defenders around the box when they're pushing high, so high up the pitch is quite an important way of making sure that you don't concede in those situations and that you're able to clear the ball and try and give yourself an opportunity to reset. And from where I'm sitting, I think often these things that change in games, as the momentum changes, there are several things we'll talk about because several things impact this. But you have lots of different little things that happen in the course of a game. And they're not all perfect. You know, David Moyes does make mistakes. Individual players make mistakes as part of this. You know, we just talked about Pakita playing like he's running downhill in these situations when perhaps he could, you know, take an extra touch. Perhaps he could just run up the field that a little bit further, take someone on, try and win a free kick or play it out wide and see if we can win a throw in high up the pitch and just give ourselves an opportunity to, to reset. So individual players and managers do make mistakes as part of this, but all these little things happen and then they get repackaged as if a diktat comes from the bench and says, (laughs) that's it, lads. It's 1-0, game over. We're all defenders now. Um, 
I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Cal, and then we can sort of start to break through all those little things that happened that contribute to that. But I certainly feel that it's a it's an unfair representation of what actually happens on the pitch. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think it's 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 obviously a combination of both, right? I think there is and always has been an element of passivity and just by the nature of Moyes' footballing philosophy, I think it's probably fair to say that he is, um, along with several other managers, a manager who values not conceding more than scoring. I don't think that's that unfair. I think he's quite happily to keep a clean sheet and then hit you on the counter and, and win 1-0 rather than try and beat you 3-2 and, and let goals in at the back but outscore you. I think it's Apart clear... from that wild period where we played side bet round with number 10 <laughs> for a while and we're just yeah. like... And, and obviously the Jesse Lingard bit as well, where we were like, yeah, 3-3 three, three every week. Should we have a 4-2, <laughs> uh, you know, 4-3. You know, yeah. Apart from that bit, yeah, mostly yeah. I think you're right. Um, so that it kind of comes with the territory. But like you say, it's like, it's not... I think it's easy to blame Moyes, but like there's two managers in a football game and it's as much to do with Anthony Raiola saying, right, everyone get forward. This is already a high-pressing outfit that records an average of four five ppda match which is incredibly high so the pressure is already going to be on you pinning you back i'm now going to put my tallest midfielder up top in the front line and i've also brought on two extra strikers that is absolutely all out of david Moyes' control there is nothing he can do about that he's not allowed to turn around to iriola and go sorry mate that's a bit unfair can you actually just bring on one striker and keep billing alongside suchek in center mid so that we're a little bit less under pressure is how it's just it's just how the way the game goes. So, unfortunately, yeah, we we do get pinned back. It's I think my issue lies with how you then respond to that, and there are things that you can do to shift the momentum back in your favour, which is bring on subs and change the momentum of the game and do it proactively and do it early. And and when you start to see you're getting pinned back, you respond to Iriola's sort of front-footed substitutions and change the flow of the game by bringing on fresh legs who can then hit in transition with a bit more um impetus and a bit more incisively and, and carry the ball forward much faster than a tired player who's been working hard for 60 minutes and then struggling to get up the pitch and I think that's where the issue lies it's not about the fact that I think that Moyes is actively telling the players to to sit back at all costs and just bide their luck I don't think that's the case at all and I think I, I didn't hear it, but I've seen lots of reports about Moyes actually screaming at the players to get higher um, from the sideline. It was picked up on a microphone, I think, which kind of disproves the whole point, right? But it's the players out there saying, we literally can't do that because we're getting wave after wave of attack that's preventing us from doing that. If we do it, it's going to be suicide because we'll do it and then they'll just play a ball in behind because we're all way too far up. And then then all the fans will be like, oh, we should have sat deeper. So it's, it's a catch-22, right? But the issue is that... I think he brought on the subs, as he quite often does, and we've often held this against him. He brought them on too late, and as a result, we didn't have the legs to fight back against the press, and eventually, obviously, we were punished for it, and then didn't come away with the three points. Let's talk about substitutions then. <laughs> I think this is a really interesting topic, because before last season... I would have been completely 100% with you on this. The, mm-hmm. the subs always happen too late. And last season started and we were making subs. We were making subs and they were mm. making us worse. <laughs> yeah, true. Last season. Um, and I wonder if this return, not only to 4 4 
block and you know all the rest of it is going to come with a bit of a return to some of the other pre-existing negatives that came with Moyes football that maybe just kind of changed a little bit last season it's not to say it went very well obviously it went pretty badly for the most part um but a return to kind of the tried and trusted this is what I do approach Mm. and that has tended to involve not many substitutions um and that was certainly the way again uh, at uh, the weekend. I think my biggest issue with what I mean, obviously, you know, Bournemouth made what five changes before we'd made our first, which, yeah, given them a hell of a head start there, mate. Um, <laughs> but secondarily, I think it was pretty clear 60 minutes, Ben Rama had already begun to tail off. 65 minutes, Fawn Owls was really tailing off. 70 minutes, Antonio was gone. Mm hmm. And then what is it, 75 minutes or so, somewhere around that point, Danny Ings comes on for Mikel Antonio. So let's talk about Danny Ings up front when this happens, when you're camped deep. I I suppose what I'd like to ask you, if you and, and can you get into the mind of David Moyes? <laughs> what is Danny Ings going to offer in that situation? When you're camped deep, what benefit is there to bringing Danny Ings on as a striker, as a lone striker, when really your 10 other players are stuck in and around your penalty area and it's just going to be a striker isolated against the Bournemouth back line? Yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, <laughs> it's not... Um, I, the, the only thing I can think, the only logic... Aside from it just being fresh legs, but really how fresh are Danny Ings' legs this far on into his career? <laughs> Not very. Um, I'm so sorry, but... Danny. That's <laughs> out of order, what's just happened there? Yeah, but you know, you know what I mean? Like He's not as sprightly young. He's not. He's never been rapid. So, and in this system, that's what you need. Yeah. You need someone, if you're going to sit that deep, who can get the ball and carry it up the pitch. And I think it, the only thing I can think in bringing Ings on is when you play this sort of football you're depending on the fact that when you get one chance, you're going to need to put it away. And Danny Ings, to be fair to him, like I say, not quick, but generally clinical uh, throughout his career. He has made a career out of being that sort of fox-in-the-box poacher that if you get the ball to him and he's in front of goal, he'll probably put it away. Uh, But that also depends on getting the ball to him in front of a goal, which if all 10 players are behind him is not really likely to happen. Um, so yeah, uh, question marks, definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's partly um, going back to the sub thing. I, I guess previously two and a bit years ago, I guess when this was most effective, when Moyes first came in, we were relying on the same players, but they were all a lot younger and a lot faster. So relying on Antonio two and a half years ago was fine because if you defend for 60, 70% of the game, you're actually not using your sprints and that lot, that sort of high intensity movements very often. So in the 70th minute, you're not actually that tired. So maybe you don't need something. Mentally, it's quite demanding and taxing because you're having to make sure you're in the right position all the time. You need to make sure you're tracking your man, you're closing passing lanes. But in terms of actual physical exertion, there's not much. So that's why in games against Lyon or whatever, a snap moment after Antonio's not done much for 
60 minutes, 70 minutes, you can rely on him to run the full length of the pitch at maximum speed with Bowen tailing him and then you then you score. But now you're trying to ask Antonio to do the same thing two and a half years on with a few injuries in between. The 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 system becomes blunt because what was your sharpest tool is now not really capable of fulfilling that counter-attacking responsibility, which I think is why, as I said at the top of the pod, we kind of need to move away from Antonio and find someone who can do what he did two and a half years ago. I mean, we saw what Alain Grenouane did against Arsenal the other day. That's the sort of thing I want to see. Um, but obviously, anyone that's listened for a while will know that <laughs> we're quite upset that Awani ended up at Forest and not at West Ham. Yes. I do think Antonio, to his credit, had a really good game up until sort of late on and played quite well. Um, I suppose my take on this is increasingly becoming that there's this sort of false logic that crops up in these situations where better players might equal goals um, in, in these situations. So you end up towards the end of the game with the front two of Danny Ings and Lucas Pacata, who's played in the middle for most of the, the match. Tilo Carer ends up coming on uh, in midfield to replace Pablo Fornals. And actually, yeah, okay, so if we get into a position where we're around the box, those are probably two players that I want getting on the end of, uh, of chances because I back them to score over most of the other players in the team, save maybe Jared Bowen. Um, but how are we going to get there? You know, Ings hasn't got the pace to be able to get us there. Packard is knackered. He's been playing all game in the middle. Like, he's just not got the the energy left to be able to go up and down like that, to be making sprints beyond the back line. And, you know, to be honest, he's not someone that's got raw pace like that to get up and beyond defenders. And we saw it for, what, a couple of minutes at the end of the match? Corne eventually yeah. came on to replace Pakata, played through the middle, and Ings dropped back into the 10 position. Created a chance. Obviously, he's offside. I mean, he's always offside. I don't know. He's offside <laughs> for 90 last season. Must have been about 10. I know he recorded the most in the league. Um <laughs> last season in terms of a per 90 ratio which is a bit of a harsh representation because he barely played last season so obviously it's going to be skewed but um, that man lives offside um but even in that brief time we created a good opportunity a couple of good opportunities actually because ben rama got away again down the left late on which came as a result of crucially maxwell corne makes a run towards going in behind the forest defense sorry the bournemouth defense no that he's quick. So the momentum has shifted backwards, which gives corner the opportunity then to drop in, receive off of the midfield, play to Ben Rama, and then spin back and make his run. Creating that space in front of the back line so your striker isn't immediately pressured is what gives you the opportunity to get out. You need pace to make it happen. Danny Ings mm-hmm. is not going to be able to dart in behind and get everyone moving backwards to generate the space for himself to drop off then and receive the ball. So I think that logic of better players equals goals kind of falls apart really um, on the pitch because actually you have to have a plan to get there and and so, so crucial to a, to a counter-attacking 4-4-2 functioning is the front two, the pace that you have in those positions um, and then, of course, the, you know, the, the ability to finish your chances. And I suppose the trade-off, you know, I suppose if David Moyes was uh, allowed a right of reply on this podcast, would be, well, yeah, we got there, but what happened when we got there when we had the worst players in those positions or the less clinical players in, in those positions? Corne was offside, didn't make anything from it. You know, that that would probably be the way that he would look at it. So you would land in this situation where one group might be slightly less clinical, might need a few more chances to actually score, and another group might struggle to actually create them. My argument would be 
creating the chances shifts the momentum and momentum is important in football even if you don't score and shifting the momentum slightly even if it means you 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 don't create anything they get the ball keeper keeper gets it and they get to launch back at you is is good but shifting the momentum and you win a throw in or you win a corner off a chance you might not score that's enough when you're one nil up to give you a much better chance of winning the game at the end we got a couple of things that I want to cover really quickly towards the end of this podcast the first of which is probably the biggest individual performance negative from the game, which was um, Nifiga's first half performance against Dominic Solanke. There's been a lot of talk of West Ham looking for a centre-back in this window. Harry Maguire very closely linked. There's news today as we're recording Tuesday that that might be off now because Harry Maguire is looking for a severance package from Manchester United. and That is taking a very long time to agree. Increasingly, it looks like you know, our big money centre-back signing of, of last season might need some competition for that place because Kurt Zuma had a very good game defensively. Not great on the ball, and it's kind of a problem, as is always the case with West Ham, left side already strong on the ball, right side. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but with the way that we defend, it's a bit of a problem if a striker's constantly able to run in behind one of your centre-backs and, and allow the other team to get forward and stage from, from higher positions up the pitch. And that happened a lot in the first half, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think the first half was poor, frankly, from by his standards. I think he looked, especially next to Zuma, I think it, it made it look even more markedly poor, in my opinion. I think Zuma looked sharp and his, his decision-making of when to step out and, and close down or whether to step out and head or or clear the ball was, was pretty much spot on throughout. Whereas, in contrast, Agurd looked... Um, Almost like he was just a couple of seconds off the mark, and he didn't he didn't back himself to make those decisions to step out and close it down. And what we saw instead was a sort of passivity where he stood off and allowed shots to be taken in front of him or passes to be made in front of him, or he made the wrong decision and stepped out too much, and then Solanke just rolled him and and got him behind, um, and and the pass was made by someone else again, often Rothwell or Brooks, who I think also had a good game, and that's great to see. I think it's important Fantastic to say to see fair play to Brooks. Um, so yeah, it was frustrating. I think in the second half, he looked to be getting back up to pace a little bit. I think his decision-making was slightly more um, improved. I think he was a bit more aggressive. Um, there was one moment which kind of 50-50, it was good in the sense that he made a double stop on Solanke where it could have been a penalty. He got his foot to it and then he closed down the the rebound that fell to Solanke as well. But still, he did allow Solanke to get into that position by getting behind him. So he could have prevented having to make the double block by just not making that mistake in the first place. So I hope that it is just, like you say, maybe a bit of, um, what's the word? Like you say, the lack of competition has, has maybe meant that there's, he's not felt like he's maybe needed to get up to speed as quickly as he probably should. And, and maybe he's just like everyone else in the team trying to find that full fitness. And I hope he gets there soon because he is going to be integral, not only in, defending the box if we're going to play this low block because aerially he's pretty dominant and, and defensively generally he's been pretty good but also in terms of allowing us to build up in a world where Cresswell is not in the side anymore having someone with his passing range and execution is going to be crucial um, particularly depending on how the midfield looks in front of him uh, <laughs> playing into those channels and helping to feed whoever it is that eventually ends up as our starting left winger as the season progresses. First podcast disagreement, don't think he was particularly dominant in the air last season, but that's <laughs> <laughs> we, we can agree to disagree on that. Um, last thing we'll talk about, and um, Cal, if you don't mind, we'll run over just a little bit, um, yeah. is 
two new players uh, have arrived over the course of the last week. You can read us talking about all the positives about both of them, Edson Alvarez and, and James Ward-Prowse arriving at West Ham uh, for similar fees or sort of between 13 and 40 million each of them. I think it's more towards 30 on both deals um, in midfield. Theoretically, Edson Alvarez likely, you know, the rice replacement um, and James Ward-Prowse probably either a Suchek alternate or a replacement or a guy who could potentially provide cover or replace uh, Lucas Pacata should this de- uh, bid ever arrive uh, from Manchester. Um, I suppose, first of all, how do we feel about both of those? How, how are you feeling about both those transfers? Um, I think I'm pretty positive on, on Alvarez, maybe more questions over Ward-Prowse, although I think he's a very good player. Yeah, I'm pretty much exactly there. I think Alvarez, uh, when you consider who realistically was available to us to replace Rice, I think is probably top th- top three um, targets that we could have gone for. I think he offers enough into possession to fill in possession to fill that void. He likes to split the centre backs like Rice used to do and pick up the ball deep and then take the sort of primary responsibility and build up, which is something that we're going to need. Um, he's very good defensively, um, which again that's a big hole that we needed to fill. And I think the the sort of additional benefits of him coming in and sort of himself saying that he loves to defend and, and loves being in that sort of role then allows Suchek the license to bomb forward and bring the best out of his midfield, midfield partners where previously that relationship maybe with Rice and Suchek didn't bring the best out of Suchek um, but made Rice better. Uh, well, did it make Rice better? Who knows? I personally think he's probably a better six than he is an eight, but that's a whole different debate. Um, but yeah, Ward-Prowse, more question marks. I worry about a potential midfield of Alvarez, Ward-Prowse and Suchek. If we do see that, I think the you're asking a lot of Suchek there to to play a role in that rest defence because Ward-Prowse, for all his strengths, gets passed quite easily. I think that's been a bit of an issue with his game. I think it's quite easy to get past him. He gets dribbled past a lot. Um, but I suppose if Alvarez is there to cover and Suchek is sort of the more aggressive stopper, you've got Alvarez as your screen and he is very good at winning the ball back. Um, so I suppose the other issue is the lack of pace. And if we're going to try and hit people on the counter, having a midfield three of those three is, is maybe not the, uh, the prettiest idea. Um, but yeah, positive on both really. And I think the delivery of Ward-Prowse obviously goes without saying, but also the leadership. There's a lack of leaders in the dressing room at the minute with Rice and Cresswell going. So bringing in someone with Ward-Prowse's experience as a captain and as an England international is only going to be a positive I think massively agree on on more prowess and the things that add to the dressing room super important to have a um, consummate professional leader Um, I think where Moyes is is concerned I think he will prefer having someone in that role who is English whether you know or British whatever we might think about that aside. I think that is clearly the manager's preference to have a British sort of lieutenant, trusted lieutenant um, leading things in the, in the dressing room and on the pitch. I'm not going to go into any depth on that, but that's, you know, in terms of the synergy between manager and squad, that probably is a good thing. And um, the interesting thing for me tactically is that Edson Alvarez and Thomas Suchek, you seem to see, okay, right. So one will sit and the other one will go, oh, that's great for Suchek. Brilliant. Okay. And then you think, oh, well, Will Prowse and Suchek. Yeah, that makes sense. Will Prowse, huge upside from set pieces. Suchek's really good at attacking set pieces. It's a big threat in the box. Requires a lot of attention. So even if he's not someone who's getting on the end of it, someone else might get on the end of it because he's going to draw a lot of attention away from from other players 
And then, like you say, you think, right, right so Alvarez, Suchet, Ward, Prowse, and you go, oh, no, no, I don't think so. That doesn't, tactically, I don't know how that makes sense. And my main reason for saying that is actually, like you said, Ward Prowse does get bypassed at times. He's a very good um, proactive defender. He wants to 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 press. He's a counter pressing sort of midfielder. So when you lose the ball, Ward Prowse will go and hunt that down often and, and and try and win it back. I think that's maybe where he's best is is doing that because he doesn't have that raw speed to charge yep. back with other players to go with a ball carrier. I almost slightly prefer him doing that than than trying to to get back. And also, you know, I like him around the box, so I don't want him holding back as the deepest midfielder. So I think, yeah, right, you go after it and try and win it back. And I think, well, but isn't Alvarez also quite an aggressive mm. defender? I know he wins the ball back a lot, but isn't he someone that kind of loses his position at times because he likes to hunt the ball? He likes to go after and try and make tackles. He's not necessarily the most disciplined positionally so then you start to look at it and you think well okay so maybe a bit of a concern given the whole system is predicated on being very rigid and staying in your slots and being super rigid defensively and on the ball who's receiving off the defense now we just <laughs> talked about the Bournemouth game and how important it was for Thomas Suchek having someone like Lucas Packeter who could receive off the defense and has this huge range of, of passes that he can play from that position though you know, guy likes to bring in too much risk for, for West Ham. Like, hold on to the ball a little less long, mate, because your teammates aren't, it's not Brazil. <laughs> your teammates aren't going to be able to deal with the level of pressure that you are going to be able to, to deal with. But put Alvarez, Suchek and Ward Prowse together. Yeah, who's doing that job? Who's unlocking a defence? Who's receiving off the defence and playing through? Yeah, Alvarez can drop and play between the centre-backs and help you play out like that. But is he really a back-to-goal receiver who can spin, you know, and beat a man and play forward? Not so much. I wouldn't say that's something that's really in his game. He's not a guy who's like a great ball carrier and a, and a player who's going to take people on. And then, yeah, like ball carrying, Alvarez, Suchek, who's dribbling past anyone in, in, that, in that threesome? So that's kind of the big concern tactically is how they would actually fit together. Although the relationships like make so much sense on paper on the football pitch how do they how do those players actually gel and come together into it in a team that that makes sense unfortunately i don't have an answer to that one yet but i tell you what we'll be back next week and we probably will have some answers at that point <laughs> because it's possibly likely that the midfield looks very different for the chelsea game yeah, I would think so. And I would think Chelsea's midfield will also look very different. So it's going to be a big learning curve for everyone involved, I would think. But I'm, I, for one, am excited, to be honest. Whether it's good or bad, it's kind of just fun. It is, it is exciting just to see how it all pans out. Um, it might be less exciting if it all goes to shit, but but that's what we're here for. And at least it will give us something to talk about. So, yeah, I suppose until then, um, we'll all have to wait. Yeah, very difficult to anticipate this one. Uh, Chelsea, obviously, new manager, lots of new players. So we'll have to wait and see how they shape up. And if you want some of my early thoughts on, on that without having enough information, really, because, you know, Liverpool, Chelsea might set up differently to play Liverpool than they might set up to play West Ham. Um, then please do, yeah, buy a match programme and, and have a look at, at what I have to say before the game. Um yeah, and until we're back next week, uh, probably catch me on the site. I might do might do a bit on on the tactics from from Bournemouth. Uh, maybe a little bit of a preview for Chelsea there as well. 
Um, but until then, yeah, we'll catch you here next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, guys. Sports Social Podcast Network.